Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Even if you have only a cursory knowledge of Byzantine history, you will know how often the crowds, the people of Rome or later Constantinople, protested, demonstrated, and actively intervened in political affairs, ecclesiastical politics, uh, or caused riots over the games, or a shortage of food. These popular demonstrations are routinely described in very negative terms by most of our authors, um, who obviously came from the more educated uh, upper class, not, not super elite, but you know closer to the elites uh, that ran the empire, and they describe these actions in terms um, such as you know, rabble and mob and violence and so forth. Most of you are probably aware that modern scholarship has followed that terminology, um, certainly straight through the 20th century. Now, it's understandable for that language to be used by historians of, say, the 19th century, sort of politically very conservative period, and many historians, especially if they were established academics, were on the conservative side or actively supported monarchy, were counter-revolutionaries, sometimes, not all of them. Uh, but there still was no framework for discussing popular politics or popular protests uh, or even riots in positive terms. Now, in the 20th century, that tradition largely continued. And in fact, it's still very much in place. Um, And today you can even find ostensibly left-leaning historians using terms such as rabble and mob and violence. Perhaps this is not surprising. The mentality is very well entrenched in liberal democratic politics. And by liberal, I mean in the broad sense, or the traditional liberal politics uh, in Europe um, in the past few centuries, not uh, in the very politicized sense that the term has in the U.S. And in the model of liberal representative democracy, the people are supposed to exercise their political rights through specific institutions, um, in particular elections, and to leave the conduct of policy and politics to the experts or to the politicians whom they have formally authorized to act on their behalf. So yes, it's understood that the purpose, uh, the, the goal of the political system is to advance the interests of the people, but that they're not supposed to do so sort of vocally or much less violently themselves, but to delegate that authority to more, uh, you know, sober and mature and experienced and wise experts and politicians. And so in the liberal tradition, mass action by the people themselves in the streets, right, sort of physically blocking the operations of government are routinely condemned and described in the terms that I mentioned earlier. So in this sense, the transition from the old oligarchies or monarchies to you know, modern liberal democracies didn't change all that much when it came to the sort of official perception, representation of you know, rabble mob violence. In the Byzantine case, it hasn't helped that even our framework for talking about Byzantine politics includes a very robust 
uh, conception of absolute monarchy that is repeated often from study to study, in which God plays a more important conceptual role than the actual subjects of the imperial regime. So clearly it is time to overhaul this entire framework of thought. Now, that is not the goal of my conversation today, uh, but it is a conversation that begins to set down some of the foundations of understanding of how the people or the crowd worked in ancient imperial Rome and Constantinople uh, before we can begin to construct some more normative frameworks for integrating um, that kind of behavior into our models of the political system and also of society and you know how the crowd worked in a collective sense within a, an, an imperial sort of monarchical system. My guest is Danielle Slotius, who's a professor at the University of Amsterdam. And she has remarkable publication record, uh, which I first became aware of from her book on the governor, um, sort of governors of provinces in the later Roman Empire and the challenges that they faced and, uh, you know, <laughs> popular discontent being only one of them. Uh, but she has since uh, worked on a wide range of topics. Uh, it's really extraordinary. I, so I urge you to you know, sort of check out her collected works and, and see the range of her interests and contributions. They include uh, East and West in dialogue, the divergent paths of the Eastern and Western halves of the Roman Empire, uh, crisis, and also a recent edited volume on leadership and crowds in, ancient, in the cities of the Roman Empire. So in this discussion, we cover topics ranging from, you know, the nature of crowd behavior in late antique Rome and Constantinople, the possible ways in which crowds functioned, uh, their relations with authority, but also, you know, very interestingly, how their mass behavior uh, interacted with the topography of the city, right? So the physical setting that, after all, the emperors themselves had constructed. So more on all that, you know, during the discussion, I wanted to add some final thoughts of my own on the matter of popular protests and especially their relationship with liberal democracies and the fact that it's not only that we are going to need a new model for understanding what all those people are doing in the streets, but that it's kind of already been forced on us in the sense that Certainly by the 1990s, if you were paying attention, but it would have been impossible to miss in the early 2000s that our politics has become increasingly dysfunctional in the sense of larger and larger groups of people are realizing that the liberal democratic project is not advancing their interests, but that the formal institutions that were supposed to do so, elections and others, parliaments and so forth, have kind of been captured by plutocratic, oligarchic interests, and that we face an extraordinary range of existential problems that those institutions seem to be resisting any kind of attempt to you know, take the actions that we need and so, you know, none of us is a stranger to the sight of, or actually participating in, popular protests that 
sometimes even turn violent around the edges uh, regarding issues from you know, climate change and economic inequality and the fact that we have police death squads and you name it. And there's a question as to whether we will be able to come to terms with those problems through the institutions that we were raised to believe, you know, work for us if we just work through them, um, or whether some of these will require some louder uh, voices, and those are collective voices, to, to speak up. And the scenes that we've seen around the world, right, from the United Kingdom and France and the United States and Turkey and you know, the Arab Spring when it happened and so forth are sort of acclimatizing us more to a more Byzantine model of political action. Um, and, who, you know, who, who knows where this is all going to go, uh, but uh, if our institutions continue to be regarded by greater and greater parts of the body politics uh, as dysfunctional and unable to provide solutions. So that's a that's a definite uh, problem that we face. It is alarmingly the case that even in the later 20th century, uh, some of the most significant advances, especially in the areas of civil rights and the environment, were grudgingly conceded by our elites after years of sustained pressure in the streets. And that kind of pressure was itself the result of organizing uh, by people who did not have political power or hold political office. Um, and it's precisely this kind of organizing that we may slowly begin to detect uh, even in our sources for Byzantium. Uh, many thanks again to Medievalist.net for uh, hosting this podcast uh, on their website as well. And uh, so without any further rambling on my part, uh, here is my conversation with Danielle. Hello, Danielle. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. <laughs> so I'm really happy to have you on here. And you, you've worked in a, such an interesting and broad range of topics. And I was fascinated to see that most recently you're turning to the question of the crowds and crowd behavior and psychology in um, you know, late antiquity, also Byzantium. And I thought this was interesting in part because even though you've done a lot of things in between, I remember you, I mean, your name is associated in my mind with your first book, which I think was on the governor in late antiquity. And often, you know, we write about the governor as having to deal with the emperors who, you know, it's a hard boss to have. But in reality, most of the time, the governors would have been dealing with all these people on the ground and in their cities and, and like the local problems would have been much more intractable in some way. So it's almost like you've come back to the problems <laughs> that the that governing authorities in this empire were facing all the time and talking about crowds in particular. Uh, so but also, so thank you for sending me this PowerPoint presentation of a lecture that you gave because I really enjoyed seeing the slides uh, in the first ones, you've put together some slides from recent protests. You know, they're going all around the world. And you don't really need to know where these are precisely because the images are so universal, like what we're seeing on TV screens, right? Riot control and tear gas and all of this. I thought this was so interesting because I, I've given similar presentations like this in the past, you know, when I was working on like the people in Constantinople and their political mm -hmm. action. And I remember... One of them was in 2013 in Istanbul. We we're doing an NEH summer um, 
uh, seminar and it was right after the protests at Taksim Square. And like the tear gas was literally in the, in the air. Um, so yeah, this is a timely topic. Uh, so let me, let me start off with a general question. Um, so what makes crowds such a fascinating topic of research for you? Um, well, you know, it, it's it's funny that you start with, with the governor as well, in a way, because I think one of the passages I remember studying was uh, of a governor in, uh, in in ancient Syria who at some point enters an arena uh, and then instead of the crowd cheering at him, uh, the crowd was really silent. And so he immediately realized that he's in trouble, obviously. Uh, and I think these kinds of images sort of got me onto um, to this topic in a way. Uh, the other thing that is really fascinating to me is that um, for us also, crowds really speak in a way. We have a certain reaction to even to the word crowd. Uh, I myself am not, you know, sort of fearful of crowds. Uh, I really don't like to be uh, within crowds. Um, some people do. Uh, they like to go to festivals, right? Uh, they like to um, do the wave. Uh, they even like to throw themselves from the from the stage onto <laughs> the crowd uh, and just see what happens. Um, you know, I, I'm not that kind of person, um, but but I do think, and, and a few years ago, I realized also, also in thinking about how to study crowds, you know, I'm Dutch, um, and uh, speed skating is very much a big thing in this country, uh, and so I remember going to a speed skating competition, I think it was European Championship or something like that, Um where uh, I really enjoyed actually being part of the crowd, of the cheering, uh, you know, all looking at the eyes, looking at the really wonderful performances, uh, even becoming part of a wave. Uh, and then I also realized crowds uh, are also, can also be a very positive experience. And, and so I think this fascina fascination I have is, is both with sort of the fearful and the threat, the threat of a, of a crowd, but at the same time also, uh, also yeah, the, the power a crowd can have. And, and of course, throughout history, crowds have been everywhere, uh, right? And, and me being a historian of, of the ancient world and of the Byzantine world, um, also in looking at, at crowds from that period, uh, it also gives me the possibility to talk to people who, who study crowds in different periods of time or in different continents. Uh, and so this universality of the phenomenon is really interesting um, as well to me, I think. Yeah, so crowds have this ability to amplify the, the emotion of the moment, uh, whether it's fear and terror, right? Uh, or yeah. uh, just the sheer energy. Okay, so we won't find you in a mosh pit, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah. An, an energized crowd for a speed skating competition. Well, why not? I mean, in Constantinople, you had crowds that were, you know, really vocal about like the mime shows. So to each his own, I guess. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about crowd behavior in like late antique Rome and Constantinople that you, you've written about. So what sorts of people are we talking about? Who, who is the crowd? Well, yeah, who's the well? That, you know, that that in itself is is right away a difficult uh, question. I've come to realize as well, and I don't think I've really come to grips with it yet. But if you start to look at the sources, you know, read a lot of the literary sources, uh, you basically find them everywhere. They they go to processions, for instance. 
uh, you find them in general in the public space of a city. And if we if we talk about ancient Rome or Constantinople, uh, there's lots of public space where crowds can actually gather. Uh, so processions, um, they are also at games and entertainment. Um, uh, they are at uh, lots of uh, celebrations, for instance. If we think about Constantinople, every year on May 11th, they would celebrate the foundation of the city. Uh, so there would be a gathering, processions, uh, people would go there. Uh, they would celebrate uh, collectively uh, an imperial marriage or, very importantly, a coronation of an emperor, for instance. They would be part of those kinds of uh, public events, uh, but they would also riot. You know, we also find them uh, in moments of despair when they are very unhappy because they're upset about the high bread prices or they're hungry. Um, you know, and if you want to uh, riot, you don't go into the little, little alleys of the city, you go to the big public places. Um, so you find them basically in lots of different settings and, uh, and situations. Yeah, and of course, uh, in life in antiquity, you know, there's not probably not that much to do at home, in a, in a sense, right? So certainly every form of entertainment required a group, someone had to perform something, there was no, yeah. no recording or anything like that, right? So um, there are many, it's almost like they're constructing opportunities to be out in public. And yeah. ancient cities had all of these amenities from theaters and amphitheaters and hippodromes and boulevards and, and fora and all of these places, precisely so that people could gather and do things. And, you know, yeah, I mean, for our audience, you know, the, the calendar of ancient Rome had often to be purged of all of the accumulated festivals and, and parties that, that built up over time just because they were eating up all the, the business hours. So, yeah, in these ancient cities, there's um, uh, uh, many opportunities for getting together and, and, and partying or for demonstrating, you know, uh, what it was. But, but let's get back to the crowd that is the people themselves. Isn't there a, there's a, there's a quantum leap between the, the, your sort of small town or small city in antiquity and when you get to like cities like Antioch and Constantinople and Rome, right? So the, the population size just explodes. Yeah, yeah. And that population is in a certain way, it's artificial. In other words, you, I don't think you would get those kinds of concentrations of people in one place unless you had some sort of political authority that is making sure that they have food and water for one thing, but also the civic infrastructure and amenities. And so there's this kind of relationship between the authorities and the, and the populace at large mm -hmm. um, right from the beginning. Uh, that is, their presence there is conditioned on this kind of relationship that is both um, well, symbiotic, I would, I would don't want to say parasitical, mm -hmm. symbiotic, yeah. right? So yeah. the political authorities want the populace for some reason, and the populace gets things from the political authorities. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're both, they're trapped in this relationship that's both uh, mutually advantageous, but also sometimes competitive or contested, right? Um, and so in, in the chapter that you sent me, you discuss cases where crowds are behaving in ways that the political authorities like, you know, that have even organized and also behaving in ways that go against the interests of, you know, be it the emperor, mm -hmm. the governor or, or whoever. 
Um, so could you give some, could, could we delve a little bit more deeply mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. the, the, the grounds for that kind of relationship and what sorts of things did either party want from the other such that the crowd could be both energizing and terrifying? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think if, if you, and I think you put it rightly, you know, they both want something from each other. Uh, and of course, for an emperor, be it in Rome or in Constantinople, uh, we can we can say that they need the crowd or the population of the city to acclaim them at the beginning of their rule. So also to legitimize their rule. Uh, but the crowd also expects something back uh, in, uh, you know, in infrastructure, in a um, emperor that brings peace to them, that uh, makes sure that they have food. Uh, that gives them entertainment. And, and I think there's a, there's a certain tension also because uh, the crowd in itself, and that's of course the advantage in a way of also the anonymous uh, crowd, the population of the city, uh, they will survive an individual emperor. Um, and, and, and so in a way, the mechanisms of their relation will continue even if the individual emperor dies or, or uh, you know, goes out to battle and, and is gone. Uh, but the institute and what it represents is still there. And so the crowd or the populace or the populus romanus, which is often used for the city population of Rome as well, especially in it, its political uh, position uh, of legitimizing an emperor in his position is really important. Um, in return, uh, I think, and that's what fascinates me also with these crowd gatherings, for instance, at games, you know, if you think about the Circus Maximus uh, or the Colosseum in Rome or the Hippodrome in, uh, in Constantinople, these were also occasions where uh, the people could meet the emperor. Uh, these were also public occasions where they could show their, you know, happiness and content about them, but at the same time, perhaps, uh, you know, being unhappy, what I said before about this one governor arriving in the arena and all of a sudden the mm. crowd is silent, you know, then there's trouble. Um, and, and what fascinates me again, I guess I use the word fascination quite a lot here, but uh, that you have this emperor, um, both in Rome and in Constantinople, having, uh, you know, very physical closeness to the people. Uh, and, and if you think about the Circus Maximus in Rome, 250,000 people gather, yeah. you know, even, well, I don't think here uh, in the Netherlands or in Europe, we don't have those, you know, locations where so many people come together yeah. and they didn't come, you know, they came together quite often. Uh, and, and so the emperor in a way is also very vulnerable by putting himself out there. You know, we see that in, in very famous riots in Constantinople in 532 under the rule of Justinian with the Nicar riots, uh, where, because in the Hippodrome, and that's interesting, both in Rome and in Constantinople, the imperial box, so to speak, where the emperor would sit, you know, and watch games or uh, horse races, uh, you know, was, was adjacent to the palace, but was also part of that stadium. Um, and, and so there's this awareness, I think, also from both sides, uh, that there was this vulnerability, um, accessibility to each other. On the other hand, uh, there was, of course, also the imperial power and the imperial guard. And, and you were supposed to behave if you were part of the crowd. Uh, right. I mean, yeah. um, this is also sort of this, again, universal mechanism that, and I think we all know, if you are part of the crowd, you know, you have to adjust to the pace of the crowd. 
if you go sit in the stadium, you know, there are certain seats where you can go sit. And, and so there's also this sort of order um, that is necessary to be part of this relationship. If you want to meet the emperor, then you also have to adjust and become part of the mass. Um, so there's, there's lots of tensions and, and different aspects here, I think. Yeah, even from the standpoint of like political science, you know, you could divide regimes into those where the rulers not only have but need to have for their legitimacy, like you said, some sort of relationship with a populace that they need to enact and perform and repeat. And those that don't. So, for example, you often have a, an itinerant court that moves mm -hmm. from some temporary yep. capital to a temporary capital and, you know, doesn't have like a populace to whom it it, with, with whom it has this dialectical relationship, uh, like, you know, anything from the Mongols to the early Merovingians, and, you yeah. know, th this sort of thing. Um, and it, it, it seems there's something inherent in the Roman order that it needs that kind of relationship. You know, I sometimes think in the, in the later third and fourth centuries, it's almost as if the emperors, you know, kind of they left Rome and they took to moving around the frontier with their armies. And it was almost like, almost like the two sides kind of separated for a while and you have itinerant emperors, but they always kept this notional relationship, yeah. right? To, mm -hmm. a, to a crowd, to a populace mm -hmm. by using temporary capitals along the frontier as if they were Rome yeah. and then later settling in Constantinople and, and restarting the whole thing again. So I think yeah. they never quite got out of that relationship, but you, they, you know, it could have, it could have turned into something very different. But, yeah, precisely. Well, there the, the must have been also people, uh, of course, especially in those situations, right, when the emperor was traveling, who would come from Rome or Constantinople with them. On the other hand, I think we, we tend to forget also, even though when, even while they were on the move, um, you know, still members of their family would be yeah, yeah. in Rome, for instance. So, uh, so yeah. they would sort of substitute uh, that imperial power that was uh, embodied in the emperor who was perhaps on com campaign or, or away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've also advocated that we can use um, your modern sociology for mm -hmm. understanding or sort of kind of yeah. probing a little bit more into crowd dynamics in yeah. um, antiquity and late antiquity. Uh, can you give us some examples of what you have in mind? So what can we learn from modern theory? Yeah, you know, when I started to look into uh, crowds uh, and, and sort of finding them everywhere in the ancient sources, uh, both in, uh, you know, in literary sources, but also in, in archaeological sources, I thought I need to find some kind of framework, some kind of guidance, some kind of, you know, tools to help me through all this material. Uh, and what we see, especially in sociology, for instance, there's a very long tradition of trying to understand group behavior, trying to understand crowd behavior. Um, and what I like about uh, those modern theories that they're trying to come to grips with different aspects of crowd behavior. For instance, they're looking into, you know, what is the role of the individual versus the mass, uh, which is a very complicated <laughs> situation. Mm. Uh, you know, trying to, to, to figure out if you as an individual become part of a crowd, um, what kind of self-control do, do you still have? Uh, and for a long time, uh, those ideas were also dominated by the view that uh, if we as individuals become part of a crowd, then we completely lose self-control. We're not really responsible anymore for what we, uh, for what we do and sort of we, you know, we, we become the mass, so to speak. 
um, I think in you know recent decades, uh, you know, we think a bit more nuanced, and we really see that if you're part of a crowd, uh, you know, there's still individual responsibility. If you if you if you're part of riots, for instance, hmm. uh, and people start to pick up stones, I mean, there is if you decide to do that, there is a moment that you as an individual make a decision to you know pick up a stone and throw as well. Um, but so those, you know, that kind of distinction between individual and mass is very helpful for me. Uh, also leadership, you know, who leads a crowd? Uh, crowd never emerges out of nothing. Uh, a crowd needs to have a reason, either because it's, a, you know, it, it's in an organized setting, such as games where people come together or for a riot. But there needs to be a reason and someone needs to lead or organize that crowd. Uh, and so those ideas uh, are very helpful for me as well, or uh, thinking about location for crowds, you know, um, and, and, and confined space. Uh, um, if you look at the Colosseum, for instance, you have a controlled space where there's a certain number of people uh, that can come together. Um, how do you control that space, uh, uh, especially from a civic uh, authority point of view? You know, the number of entrances of the Colosseum is a choice. Uh, if you look at the Colosseum in Rome, it has about, I think, 76 entrances. That's not 10. That's not 120. It's 76. And so there is a decision, you know, a decision was made when they build it. And that's also, of course, a matter of, of crowd control. Um, open spaces are, are completely different again. Um, lately, uh, that, ne that doesn't necessarily come from sociology, but also the ideas from uh, the sensory turn, where people are all of a sudden starting to think about the senses, uh, you know, what do we smell, what do we see, what do we taste, um, can you apply that to mass uh, gatherings, uh, and for me, especially in looking at um, processions in, in Constantinople, uh, that might also be a tool to understand what the human experience was of people when they gathered together um, for a procession. Well, these are fascinating points. So let's take them in turn. I want to start yeah. with the question of the internal dynamics of the crowd. Yeah. And you mentioned the individual and, and leadership and so on. And I, I confess, in, in the ancient sources, I, I'm stumped by this. Uh, the crowd usually just appears as a monolith. Like you yeah. can't really, you know, go into the internal, you know, structure of who's calling. I mean, Who's setting the tone? Who's you know pointing yeah. them in the direction or whatever? Have you found any cases where you, where we can get into a little bit more granular detail? Well, well, you're quite right. If you start to you know, I've gathered quite a lot of uh, passages over the past few years, uh, and uh, you you don't really see um, a lot of glimpses of individuals. You know, once in a while you'll you'll get a name or. Uh, you get a sense of uh, that within a crowd, uh, there are smaller groups of crowds, for instance. Uh, you know, we, we have to keep in mind that uh, a crowd is never sort of uh, homogenous. Uh, you always have um, sort of active people within a crowd. And then, of course, we have the passive bystanders who just, you know, they just move whenever the crowd moves. Uh, but there are only very few instances uh, in the uh, ancient sources where uh, all of a sudden you get a glimpse of someone who leads a crowd or where they uh, give you a name. Uh, but in general, um, it, it's very difficult. The other thing that uh, makes it difficult to work with the literary sources also is that um, 
we we often you know we we also have to think about are the authors who write about these crowds do they really refer to real mm. historical crowds or is it uh, what you also see a rhetorical device you know yeah. often especially you know most of our authors of course are elite authors you know they don't really like the crowd no. they you know tend to uh, you know think of it as plebs and even though in latin in the beginning the word plebs really was not a negative didn't have a negative connotation uh, at some point it did uh, and for us it certainly does um, so what we often see is also that they use uh, sort of, uh, you know, voiceless crowds uh, where they, you know, I think on purpose, they don't really show any individuals because they just want to use them as a sort of, you know, the emotional mob. volatile mob, precisely, yeah. you know, they can't do anything better than than riot and be aggressive. And so you have to, from an authority point of view, you have to control them. Um, so can it does make it difficult. Can you tell us a case of an individual who is, you know, rarely singled out uh, in a in a narrative about uh, crowd behavior? Well, there are some. Uh, if you look at some of the letters of uh, Saint Augustine in uh, in uh, North Africa, uh, in some of his letters, there, there's uh, one particular set of letters where he's actually, um, you know, if you think about late antique bishops, all of a sudden they have their own crowd, of right. course, a congregation. Um, and so he's very unhappy. He has apparently tried to explain to them that they really shouldn't drink so much uh, in, in one of his uh, sermons. Uh, and then it turns out that they don't really listen. So then he singles out, I think, one or two people where he talks to them and says, look, you need to, you know, uh, make sure that the crowd is uh, or the congregation uh, stop this kind of behavior. So there you see all of a sudden a glimpse of apparently the realization by St. Augustine um, that uh, if you single out people, then you can have them uh, as as being members of the crowd and perhaps uh, or obviously, uh, as far as he thinks, influential figures. Uh, the influencers. Uh, They're the influencers. <laughs> the influencers, precisely. Yes, yes, the, the influencers. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. I remember yeah. a case. Oh, I may be misremembering it, but wasn't Porphyrius the charioteer once? He he led a, a mob to attack a Jewish synagogue, I think, once. Uh, and he was the most famous charioteer of his time, yeah. right? Around 500. He was, like, I think the most famous football player in the world or something like that <laughs> yeah. yeah and he got involved in like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. anti-jewish yeah. you know riots or whatever um, well yeah and, and we see of course also if, if you talk about influencers uh you know students sometimes ask me too because i like to also uh talk about the acclamations of the crowds mm. uh during uh lots of uh um, events in Constantinople, they all of, they often ask me if I show them some of the acclamations from the sources. You know, they 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 seem to be rather uh, complicated, and of course, this is a, a society where they're much more used to uh, repetition and and of course uh, uh, also remembering. Uh, but I, I think there was also the mechanism that uh, they would have people within the crowd also who would sort of be the four singers uh, right. and who could actually, so there you also have uh, a glimpse of individuals. Uh, but I think in general, you're right. Uh, crowds are often very monolithic. Um, yeah. Or they're presented that way. I mean, I, I yeah, think you're presented. right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, surely. Yeah. yeah. I think mm -hmm. you're right about the authors yeah. because, you know, it's, it's the same way as we, we see, you know, protests and demonstrations, the way they're covered on TV, 
uh, today, especially in a politically polarized climate where yep. you know, one channel will say, this is a protest against this great injustice. And another channel will say, yeah, violent protesters destroying property. And like, they're talking about the same people. Yeah. So yeah, yeah our, our sources are, I think, taking sides in, in that way too. Um, yeah, so let's pick up the second point that you mentioned, which was the urban topography. I find this quite fascinating. And I'll tell you, once I had a uh, sort of debate disagreement with a colleague who, I think his view of the late Roman administration was that it was sort of repressive and that the city of Constantinople was designed so that for maximum repression. And I just don't have that sense at all. Um, I So for one thing, and and... This might be obvious, but I think it needs to be stated that again, you have many regimes in history that do not create the spaces where people can assemble in large numbers, right? Um, and one example that comes to mind is Pharaonic Egypt that mm -hmm. did a lot of building, but mm -hmm. none of that building was to facilitate group activities. <laughs> and, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and the, the whole regime was just not based on that kind of interaction and, yeah. and whatever. But if you look at Constantinople, it's kind of, you know, infrastructural armature. It's lots of open spaces like the, the fora, yep. wide boulevards, big, you know, piazzas next to the churches, the hippodrome, obviously, right next to the palace. And I just think it was designed for mm -hmm. people to move around in large numbers. And mm -hmm. I mean, from the emperor's standpoint, these would have been for like, triumphs and processions and like you know positive regime yeah. reinforcing yeah. types of events yeah. right but so you've identified some uh control nodes right some mm -hmm. choke points in various places i think mostly in rome mm -hmm. oh, so if, if you agree that the cities were kind of designed to facilitate mm -hmm. group activities what kind of controls did the regime have in terms any 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 type of control, whether rhetorical or, or architectural? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think you're right in in, in saying that um, for Rome, to a certain extent, but certainly for Constantinople, um, it was almost ideally laid out for a large gathering, especially during uh, processions or or in the Hippodrome. And, and of course, I think the advantage for some of the emperors over, uh, in Constantinople over Rome was also that there was still space, right, when they uh, started to, to build it. And, and I think they were very much thinking also about, you know, on the one hand, you need a crowd uh, at processions also, also to acknowledge you and uh, especially during, during triumphal um, occasions, uh, but also to have this, uh, this display and these grand boulevards, these fora, imperial fora, these were also areas to pu publicly show your imperial uh, power. And, and mm. so I think also to create locations for the crowd to go to and to witness that imperial power was very much part of, of this relationship between emperor uh, and city. And um, of course, it, you know, in terms of crowd control, you, you can think or you can talk about what I just said about the Colosseum too, you know, thinking about the number of entrances. Mm. Um, of course, in Constantinople, you also had, you know, throughout the various neighborhoods you had uh, churches and and where smaller processions could take place. Uh, so there you could have 
smaller gatherings, um, the fact that you allow people, you have enough space for people to feel comfortable during processions in itself uh, is also a matter of crowd control and directing people when you have this large procession, right? Uh, what I think is, uh, is interesting in Constantinople is also these double colonnades. So people could stand on, you know, mm. a, a second level even, which I, I think, especially if you want to witness the emperor, you know, I would want to be in the first, uh, you know, on the first uh, uh, floor, uh, because then, of course, you might be able to witness the emperor uh, on his horse, you know, sort of almost, you know, same, same height. Um, yeah. Uh, but that in itself is also a matter of helping uh, larger crowds of people to be able to to gather together. Um, uh, for, for, for riots, they would, uh, of course, uh, then perhaps choose the hippodrome because that's where you would have an organized uh, location, uh, but very threatening also to the imperial uh, uh, household. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. By the way, for the benefit of the audience, when you say the first floor is what in the US we mean the yeah. second floor. <laughs> I, I, I was when I said that, I thought, is that correct or not? Yes, yeah. I I I remember when I lived in the United States, I always got mixed up because people would say, Oh, you can visit me at the first floor, and then I ended up, you know, at the wrong floor. But yeah, on the second yeah. floor, yes, double colonnade and two two stories high. <laughs> yes, in the same way that we don't have a 13th floor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we, we do. We just call it the 14th floor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, no, yeah. So I think you're right. And the the, um, the instances of mass gatherings that were favorable to the regime and reinforced its legitimacy were was far greater, I think, than yeah. than the protests. Yeah. And so routine and institutionalized that they're sometimes rarely even mentioned by the sources. But occasionally you get a glimpse of them and they're quite fascinating. So like along the boulevard, the boulevards of Constantinople, the emperors, like if they had a, uh, they baptized their heir. If, if, if the emperor had a son and baptized a son, they, there was this special type of uh, food. I don't know exactly what it was made of. And, and they, would, they would make it available to the population and tables along the boulevards and there'd be a party and the emperor's like feeding the populace with this special concoction. I don't know what it was. Um, or when you mentioned uh, the, the, the uh, colonnades, yeah, that's so fascinating. When emperors processed sometimes like for Easter, those yeah. colonnades would be draped with yeah. red curtains and, you know, just mm -hmm. silk all over the place. And it was just a huge party. So that's the routine of life in the imperial capital and you know those kinds of moments reinforce uh, each other and 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 create you know the the legitimacy of the regime over and over and over again yeah no i, I think you're exactly right um the I, the protests are the i think they're disproportionately mentioned in the sources because they're mm -hmm. new but, yeah precisely yeah. yeah so well i think if, if you look at the calendar in constantinople i think isn't it like potentially every five or six days there is a procession and of yeah. course not you know these huge grand uh easter processions uh but uh, in a, a, you you could potentially well you wouldn't because you wouldn't have you know the time as you would have to make some money and for a living but potentially every five or six days there would be something organized yeah yeah, yeah. so let's talk a little bit more specifically about the role of christianity in, in crowd behavior because you mentioned yeah. that too yeah. Um, yeah so what's new uh what, what does christianity bring to the table as it were that's new 
Well, I think Christianity brings in a way, uh, especially Christian leadership, brings a, a new type of leader that is competitive um, with the emperor, right? It's competition uh, in a way, because um, here we have a, a bishop um, arising. Um, and of course, the Christian communities uh, had, you know, many more bishops than, than the one emperor. Um, people who were appointed for life, um, and even though, of course, an emperor would too, but uh, potentially uh, could also survive emperors. Um, and, and they had a very close personal relation with their congregation. And so what we see uh, is that uh, a, a new kind of crowd that all of a sudden emerges also as followers of a bishop uh, connected to a certain church. And I think it might also be uh, um, interesting for the audience also to mention that, you know, we, we, we talk about crowds sort of very generically, uh, but crowds, I think we also have to keep in mind that for every occasion in a way, a crowd, the composition of a crowd could be different. Uh, you know, for a crowd rioting about mm. um, bread prices, it, that's a different crowd than the crowd that is a, you know, forms together congregation for a certain bishop. Um, and, and so there's sort of in that sense also you have multiple identities, so to speak, in, in different kinds of crowds. Now, what we see emerge with, with Christianity is that you have bishops, and especially in the you know, third, fourth, fifth century, this is still a world in, in, in which you know, Christendom doesn't exist in, in that sense. We have lots of Christian communities. And so uh, Christian churches are still very busy in developing church dogma. And you have churches or bishops who say, okay, we have the right, the orthodox faith. Um, and then what we see is that they, in some cases, motivate their own crowd to be violent against uh, the church of another bishop who is not of the right uh, faith. So all of a sudden you have a very different dynamic also that emerges, I think, in, in society. And I think, uh, depending on, on the personality of the bishop, but they were very much aware of, uh, of their power as well in, in motivating um, potential crowds. This is a very important point. And until I read your chapter, I hadn't actually thought about it quite so clearly. But I realized in retrospect that it had been nagging at me when I was studying, you know, more the more adverse aspects of crowd behavior in Constantinople. And I'll put it to you in the form of this kind of question. So you take a few years on either side of, uh, say, 500 uh, AD in Constantinople, and you have Mm -hmm. significant protests, say, in favor of the Bishop Macedonius, uh, and implicitly and later explicitly against the Emperor Anastasius on the matter of church policy, mm -hmm. right? The Council of Chalcedon. Mm -hmm. During the same years, you have riots slash crowd, you know, um, behavior for the Blues and the Greens that are the Hippodrome factions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have some protests against corrupt officials, uh, a, a city prefect who's charging too much for food, you know, or whatever. And when I was reading your chapter, I thought, so wait a minute, is it possible that those three groups are just entirely different people, that different constituencies, different yeah. issues, mm -hmm. or 
The other extreme, which will also be fascinating, do they mm -hmm. significantly overlap? These are the same yeah. people acting out on different, right? You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> both would be sort of, uh, I guess, potentially possible. You know, I think it's also the question of, you know, what we've done for a very long time is sort of divide the population of Constantinople into blues and greens. Mm. Uh, but but if you if you look at it a bit more uh, differently from this perspective, what you just mentioned, uh, then they might come together for uh, in, in for different reasons at different occasions in a different composition, and that could quite well be the case. So uh, so that would be something to perhaps uh, you know work on a bit more and see what happens then. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a sense of the? I mean, especially when the crowd is protesting or demonstrating, do you have a sense of what its basic sort of morality is? Like, in other words, what are, because I think when people engage mm -hmm. in that kind of significant political behavior, they always have a kind of moral framework in which they at mm -hmm. least interpret their behavior to themselves. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of what their sort of underlying values of the crowd would be in Rome or Constantinople? Well, I think... You know, if these were crowds that were motivated by bishop, for instance, I think they would probably have the sense, uh, especially if the bishop would tell them uh, that they were sort of fighting for a just cause. Um, and which is quite different if you would, you know, if you're upset because you don't have, you, you can't feed your family, uh, then it's much more a matter of life and death, right? You, you want to survive and you want your children to be fed. Um, and I'm not quite sure what kind of morality would be in there, except perhaps, you know, the sense that I want to stay alive uh, and I have to take care of my family. Uh, but the, the, I think in a way what could have happened too is that uh, morality of the sense that, you know, we have a voice and that voice can only be heard when we are with a large group uh, gives a sur sort of empowerment um, that was in a way perhaps enough reason. And also I think it, it, it gave some people also the opportunity to act in a way that they would never dare to do uh, while alone, right? If you go up against the city prefect, you know, the guy who's responsible for the infrastructure, for the bread prices, or, you know, sort of the, the representative in the city of the emperor. You wouldn't do that by yourself. Uh, but if you're with 500 other guys, uh, hey, you know, uh, you would be happy and, and you would, you know, probably uh, rush towards it. I and mean, we have instances where they would just um, go to the house of the prefect and just burn it down. Uh, well, you only do that when you're with a group. So it's it's also this sense of, um, because we are a mass, of course we're right, because we have the power. Yeah, and the fact that they turn on the authorities in that kind of way, mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes not, how should I put this, not the infrastructural authorities, not the apparatus of government, but the, the mm -hmm. house of the <laughs> yeah. whoever happened to be the city mayor yeah. or prefect at the time. So it makes me wonder whether they have this um, deep sense of, unfairness that there's an unfairness in the system it's not like i want mm -hmm. to survive i need food and i'm mm -hmm. you know bringing 500 guys for leverage mm -hmm. but that no there's something corrupt you know in the system and the prefect is cheating and is price gouging right in other words that mm -hmm. when you get worked up about something that's so existential like that you yeah. you almost inevitably feel that someone is wronging you that there's mm -hmm. an injustice somewhere in the system mm -hmm. Mm 
right? And that motivates people, I think, much more. Um, yes, and if, if then you have, you know, one or two guys who can voice that wrong right. uh, and are able to explain that well, um, then, you, then you will follow. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not like I just want something for myself. It's, yeah. you're right, like I'm being yeah. treated unjustly. Yeah. And that is a great motivator that it, it, because it makes you angry. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just just in despair. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I wonder, I wonder whether I'm sort of projecting sort of modern psychology. Yeah, that's modern, the other thing I was thinking too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about that because <laughs> you've also advocated that we should be yeah. doing diachronic crowd studies. Yeah. So what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think if if you have uh, somewhat of a grip of uh, certain mechanisms of uh, uh, crowd behavior in ancient Rome and Constantinople, uh, it's very interesting to to look at larger cities, uh, for instance, in Europe, in London uh, in the Middle Ages or or early modern period, or Paris, or um, or even now or modern times. You know, you can go anywhere around the world and look at larger cities to see if some of the mechanisms that we encounter in the ancient world uh, are similar. Um, and, and then, of course, I come back to this whole sense of, you know, the sort of universality of, of crowd behavior. Um, what I find interesting is if you understand the mechanisms of leadership, of uh, the type of locations that you need for a certain type of crowd behavior, then you can almost predict what will happen if those uh, several elements come together. Um, and what you see now, and of course, we live in a wonderful age of, uh, you know, simulations and digital environments. Uh, you can also, um, and I know they, they do that if, uh, you know, and now in urban infrastructure, if, if new areas are developed, uh, they set up um, digital environments. And, uh, you know, they try, uh, if, you, if you set up squares, you know, what happens uh, when you have a lot of people leading into those areas, you can digitally simul- uh, simulate that. Um, and so in that sense, I think, and, and, but they're building, of course, on past experiences. Um, and our ancient and Byzantine world is part of the past experience. We see some solutions that might have worked or not worked well uh, in the past already. Uh, you know, I, I always you know, often say to my students, too, the Colosseum, in a way, is sort of the Ur model uh, of, of these modern stadia that we still see. Mm. And we might have refined them and nuanced them. Um, but we're part of this longer um, line of history. Uh, and, and the other way around, also, if you look at those modern digital simulations, uh, if we can make those of the ancient world, and of course, we do have, uh, you know, some of those uh, uh, digital environments already for ancient Rome, for, uh, ancient Rome for Constantinople less so. Uh, you can also, uh, you know, that's why I often call ancient Rome and Constantinople sort of historic laboratories, mm. uh, because you can test certain uh, situations also there. So I think it works sort of uh, both ways. We profit from what modern uh, techniques and methods have. Uh, and uh, the other way around, we also have a story to tell. Um, and uh, the present is very much part of that past story. Yeah, when you mentioned digital models, um, it occurred to me that we're now actually getting digital capture of crowd behavior um, yeah. through people's cell phones. Yeah, precisely. Right. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> by the way, if anyone is worried that the vaccine has chips in it that will allow people to track your movements, 
let me just suggest that you already have such a device on you. It's called your cell phone <laughs> and it is already being used for that purpose. There's no reason to inject anybody with chips. Um, and I've seen some striking, uh, this is uh, just computer, um, they're not simulations, they're recreations of the, the insurrection on the Capitol in the US on, on January 6th. Yeah. Where they just got all the cell phone data of, of all of these people. And they, and I've, I saw how, you know, the crowd just kind of moves down the mall toward the Capitol and disperses in the building. And it's, it's all just little pings from cell phones. And it, and you can see people dispersing, leaving, coming, going, and it's just really amazing. Yeah. Well, also frightening um, in all kinds of ways, but anyway, so, you know, that might actually give us that kind of data might give us some more, um, you know, accurate, accurate and, and granular representations of how crowds behave. Um, now, you know, what we can do with it in applying it to, you know, Constantinople, I, I don't know. I guess it depends on how sophisticated those models get. Yeah, I've seen them for ancient yeah. battles, mm -hmm. you know, so video game designers are very mm -hmm. interested in this. Like, how yeah. do you simulate an ancient battle? And I've seen yeah. some early yeah. attempts to create like these computer programs that will not predict, but, you know, construct a model of how people will behave on, on a battlefield. And I remember seeing one and there were, okay, so the thousand people involved in all that. And off to the side, you could see a couple of people just running away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And someone said, wait, that's a problem. What, what are they doing? And, and the designer said, no, 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 that's, you totally expect that to happen. <laughs> yeah, right. precisely. Well, you know, of, of course, for, for ancient Rome and Constantinople, you need the archaeological data. And for Rome, we are a bit more, you know, better can, equipped uh, for that than uh, for Constantinople at this stage. Yeah. But, um, but it would be very interesting because then you can uh, test lots of, you know, different ancient uh, situations. So you, you would advocate for a diachronic crowd study yeah. program? Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. certainly, yeah. So is there something that perhaps we're missing? And by we, let's just say late antique, historians mm -hmm. of late antiquity or Byzantium mm -hmm. or whatever. Is there something that we're missing by insisting too much on these disciplinary boundaries by period or culture or whatever that, that, that we should be uh, open to evidence and models mm -hmm. from other other periods and, and fields? Well, I, I think you, we can um, develop a more complete um, image uh, or plausible scenario, I think, of the ancient and, uh, and Byzantine world as well. And of course, uh, and this is something uh, that I want to continue to work on also, is this whole uh, idea that we have these very traditional chronological boundaries, right, between historical periods, and we use them. Um, often these are political boundaries, you know, between the ancient world, between the medieval world, uh, then, then we have the Renaissance, uh, but these are artificial boundaries. Uh, and uh, there are lots of phenomena, and I think crowd behavior is one of them, uh, for which these artificial boundaries really don't work so well. You know, you could say Rome, yes, uh, the last uh, uh, emperor of the Western uh, Empire, um, uh, you know, left the city in 476, and now all of a sudden we have the early Middle Ages in, mm. in the West. Uh, well, for crowd behavior, that doesn't make any sense at all because the mechanisms of crowds continued on. 
Um, and, and so I think it might be worthwhile to uh, look at, crowd, in, in my case, and crowd behavior uh, in a more open, you know, less, you know, with less boundaries uh, to see what happens then. Um, but that's something also, you know, to think about. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'd be interested in is, um, yes, that definitely. But I would also like to see a sort of subroutine <laughs> dedicated to the question of what kind of societies have crowds mm -hmm. and which mm -hmm. don't and why? Mm -hmm. it, because it's not just an urban, you know, rural thing in, in the sense that like ancient Athens, mm -hmm. like democratic Athens, as far mm -hmm. as I can tell, mm -hmm. well, except for the sense that it made the crowds its political institutions directly. <laughs> right? But I don't know of any cases where the crowd got all riled up and walked to the whatever. I, like, it didn't seem mm -hmm. to happen in that society, even though it was just as much a you know, urban civilization like, you know, Roman Constantinople or whatever, but yeah. that definitely happened in Imperial Rome. And so why, why do some societies have crowds and others don't? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something to think about too. Yeah. yeah. So we're yeah. almost out of time. Any final mm -hmm. thoughts uh, about knocking down barriers in particular? That's what, <laughs> that's what crowds do, right? Yes, precisely. Well, I would say, you know, this would be a challenge, I think, not only uh, to us, but to everyone to, to sort of re rethink in, uh, you know, how we think about the, especially these universal phenomena and uh, how we can uh, make them also part of a discussion uh, for people, not only for historians of different periods, but also for people who work in very different fields, who do digital simulations, who are in social psychology or sociology or urban design or human geography, right? To have that broad uh, conversation together because we look at the same phenomena from a very different perspective and bringing that together, I think would be really valuable. Yeah, yeah. And in addition to the psychology of people who join crowds, there, there are those who instinctively would not. Um, yes, yeah, I think I'm with you on that. Um, and the same in late antiquity. I mean, you, you find people who just rather sit behind a monastic wall or do whatever and not get involved in the crowd. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I just have the sense that life in Constantinople was a place where, oh, you know, if, if 100 people turned up because of some reason, a few thousand more would show up to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you so much, Danielle. This was, it was wonderful to explore this topic with you. Um, and thanks for coming on. I, I hope to have you back. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>